Shalom, it's Carrie Miller. And Barra Lane, your National Young Leadership Cabinet 2021-2022 Impact Chairs. And welcome to the Hebrew Connect Podcast. We are thrilled to bring you an opportunity to get to know our Hevra, who we are and why we give. Hope you enjoy. When I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, um, you know, looking into the Foreign Service Program, you know, I, I knew I wanted to serve. Uh, but when the towers were hit and, and the Pentagon was hit, it just really at that point said to me, Mark, you have to step up. You have to answer the call. The call I mean, it was like a phone that was ringing in my ear and it would not stop. And I realized that I can sit at a desk and, and talk about policy and foreign affairs, and push papers, or I can raise my right hand. Welcome. I'm your host, Zach Garber, a third-year Hevre from Baltimore. Today, I'm very excited to have another episode of Hevre Connect, where we interview different people and why they got involved in cabinet and what it is that they're doing both in the Jewish and non-Jewish world. I have the honor and privilege of interviewing Mark Wolf. Mark was born in Arkansas, reared in Texas, and currently resides in New York City. He served in the U.S. Navy from 2002 to 2006, and after working both in the for-profit world and the non-profit world, he now is the Chief Development Officer of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York. He's currently a seventh year in cabinet, has served multiple roles within the organization, and I'm so honored to have you. Uh, Mark, I think a great starting point would just be to share a little bit about your background. Thanks, Zach, for having me. I'm proud to be here. Thanks you for what you are doing uh, with this podcast. Uh, you know, I, growing up in Beaumont, Texas, which was my hometown, a very small uh, but thriving metropolis in southeast Texas, I you know, was fortunate to have um, my parents, who had been married almost 51 years, and two older sisters that really got to to learn what you know service above self and being um, you know learning that the in your life that service is the rent we pay to live and they modeled this for for both of us uh, yeah so I'm the youngest I'm the baby of, of two older sisters one of which happens to live in New York the oldest one and my middle one that lives in Houston but I, I really appreciated being from Beaumont. It was a good place to be from. I might not necessarily raise a future family there, but, you know, being in a small town where the values really just be, you know, education, all of that. You know, I I went to a high school where 80% of my class was was African-American, 20% Caucasian. So I, I really had a diverse group of uh, of classmates, I know that there was, you know, opportunities in the community that my my parents brought us to a soup kitchen. They, you know, allowed us to come to the symphony and be a youth guild. I joined the Boy Scouts, uh, became an Eagle Scout. I think there's, you know, a lot of ties in through what I do for the rest of have done for the rest of my life because of the scouting program. And we all went to Green Family Camp, Jewish summer camp, for years uh, before we all went to Israel um, as part of Nifty. So. I can really appreciate all the opportunities that I had growing up, and and really, there's not a single thing that I've I've done in life that hasn't been guided by the Scout Oath. I mean, which is on my honor, on my honor. I will do my best. I would to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the Scout Law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. 
And it really is driven by those first three words on my honor, because everything afterwards is predicated on those first three words. And I took it very seriously as a kid. And, um, and I'm just proud that I, I went through the scouting program. So it's sort of lays the, the ground floor for how I've been so service oriented throughout my life. You know, go, going to Texas A&M right after I graduated high school in 96, being in the, the reserve officer training corps, what they call the Corps of Cadets, and then uh, going on active duty right after 9-11. So it was, um, I feel like I bootstrapped a lot of my, my life going up to that point it was all about leadership development and service above self. Excellent. That that's super helpful. And when when we think about it, today, you're you're in the nonprofit. You've had multiple lives uh, professionally. Can you just share a little bit about what you did after after your your military service professionally and how you ended up both in New York and in the nonprofit world? Yeah. No. And military service goes by in a blink of an eye. Um, you know. And I shall always be proud of my service to the country. Those uh, four years of active duty just. It seemed like they they flew. It's imagining thinking we're on cabinet, and it's a it used to be a six year program that, that when I was in it, you know, it's five year, but somehow I'm getting seven years out of it. Sometimes uh, I long for the days where I'm back, you know, in the military because the camaraderie is so great, the mission was so great. But I really, you know, took those missions, you know, the mission and the purpose, and that's what's driven me through my my work in the nonprofit space. So I my first uh, job when I left business school, really after I'd worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, was working for the United Jewish Appeal, working for UJ Federation of New York, and I really like soaked it all up. You know, having been someone with bedside manner, just understanding left to right processing, because as I was in. Iraq and Afghanistan, I did a lot of targeting as part of an Al-Qaeda Taliban targeting cell. And so just fundraising became really easy to me, but it was also mission-driven because of the work of Federation. And I did that locally. I did it for JFNA. And then along comes an opportunity to, to do it for the Navy SEAL Foundation, which was the community I grew up in as an intel officer in the Navy. And I did that for another five years before going off to the National Medal of Honor Museum. And now I'm back in the Jewish communal world with the JCRC, which was a board that I sat on along with UJA before I, I actually worked at JCRC. So I had to actually step down from both the JCRC board and the UJA board and the JFA board all at the same time because of a conflict of interest that I, 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 that I identified. But um, I appreciate having that mission. That mission is a cause that causes a suppressor for anything else in life that might be bothering me, whether it's a back pain, head injury, um, you know, just, you know, foot issues. I mean, they, the suppressors are what a lot of us veterans have when we have a mission because we don't, we can push through and with all the grit we have, despite all of the pain that we have endured. And I, I'm really glad that I stuck t- with my, nor- my, my moral compass to do those types of, those types of things. So it really, really has made a difference in my own life and knowing that I'm making a difference in others. Can you share a little bit about more about your service? It was obviously such an important part of your life in terms of, um, you know, you were with the U.S. Navy, maybe just a little bit more about your time and, and how that has impacted, you know, the work that you're, you're led to the work you're doing today. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. Before I went on active duty, I was in a graduate program at the Scowcroft Institute, which is part of the Bush School of Government and Public Government and Public Service. 
And uh, I really got into the, the study of Cold War intelligence in U.S. Securities, U.S. and national security studies. And when I was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11, um, you know, looking into the Foreign Service Program, you know, I, I knew I wanted to serve. Uh, but when the towers were hit and, and the Pentagon was hit, it just really at that point said to me, Mark, you have to step up. You have to answer the call. the call. I mean, it was like a phone that was ringing in my ear and it would not stop. And I realized that I can sit at a desk and, and talk about policy and foreign affairs and push papers, or I can raise my right hand and take the oath. Right. And I took that route and, you know, I didn't know it was going to be the Navy at the first. I really kept a, a broad open perspective and I, I narrowed it down because of you know, my love of uh, the ocean, having lived on the Gulf Coast, uh, you know, in Texas, and my nautical um, love for the ocean and, and tying knots to the Boy Scouts. And, you know, I felt like I get it all done in the Navy. And so I joined the Navy and I did it as an intelligence officer. And it's kind of an oxymoron that, or at least it's ironic that in four years in the Navy, when you go, to, when I joined the Navy, you, you think you're going to go to sea. And you can. You can be on a ship. You can do a lot of things. In four years, I spent most of my time in the desert, <laughs> nowhere near water. Right? And what, so, what what are we doing? What is the Navy doing in the desert? You know, sands of Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, and it's it's because the the, the skill set that uh, of the team that I was with was was so needed. You know, we were you know um, dealing with two comp two theaters of engagement. You know, fighting. Al Qaeda in one and the Taliban in another, and the army who usually owns the ground, you just couldn't do it do it all themselves. So they brought in a direct action force through the teams and allowed us to be able to augment and share some of that that responsibility. So I spent a lot of time as an intel officer deploying to those two areas. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the air too. I was with the reconnaissance unit out of Japan and Bahrain, and there were some you know times where it was really hairy. Where you, you just you, you you didn't know if you were going to make it, right? And it goes back on those on my honor. Uh, sometimes, you know, I thought that may have been the last three words that I was going to say. And you know, me, I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do at that point in time with the buddies that I'm with, and that camaraderie was so powerful, such a such a powerful camaraderie that when you leave the service. You know, you take the camaraderie with you, but you don't have it in the same way because you're not in it with your buddies all the time. And uh, that's what makes cabinet so special. I mean, that was the impetus truly when I joined is because I was missing, right? All those years between discharging honorably to joining cabinet, I knew about the program. I had a sister and brother-in-law who were in the program. And when the opportunity came, I jumped on it. And because it's so rare for even in, in our adult life to have those types of connections with people. And so I think it's such a sh truly special thing. And I mentioned that in the seventh year closing circle that we should, uh, we should embrace that and not take it for granted. Before we, we jump into cabinet, I just want to dive in a little bit more. You know, you grew up in a small town in Texas, you, you served for our country, and then you decide to get involved in Jewish nonprofit work. What is it about the Jewish community that inspired you? You mentioned a little bit about summer camp, but what was it that you, you've decided not only to get involved on a personal lay leader side, but also full-time professionally into the Jewish community? 
Yeah, I think some of it is because, you know, I had parents, you know, growing up that were involved in the synagogue. My father was the president of the synagogue. He's president of Rotary Club. Uh, my mom involved within the Beaumont Symphony, uh, both involved in the Green Family Camp on the camp committee. Uh, my father involved with the Union of Reform Judaism. My mom part of the Women of Reform Judaism. And there's probably a countless others that they they have been a part of that really kind of helped my sisters and I, sisters and I know what that was like, and sort of was ingrained in us. It was sort of part of the DNA, um, you know, just from growing up in the house. And I have to say, like whatever my parents couldn't do, thankfully, you know, they sent us to summer camp, and I was sent to scout camp. And so, I also have to say that being at a minority, and you know, is very common for somebody Jewish in Southeast Texas. It is the Bible Belt. But we're an unsilent minority, right? You know, when 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 the Federation of Christian Athletes puts up a sign at the front of the school says, that says Jesus is the reason for the season, we take a stand. We get the ADL involved, and it becomes a part of the yearbook on the a big page in the yearbook, and that's just what happens. And so, you you learn to have that Jewish identity and peoplehood in a very small town. I give my parents a lot of credit for that. It's a lot more hands on. Than in sometimes the bigger cities, you know, and um, being in college and going to, to a, a very large public school like Texas A&M, which is now sixty thousand, being a part of an ROTC where yet again you you are a minority as someone who is Jewish, dealing with what you know all the issues that you know somebody's never met somebody who is Jewish, and so I was very proud of that. Um, and so when I went into the military, again, you're, you're, it's the same percentage. It's like less than half of a percent. And so I, you know, but at the same time, I knew that when I was deploying, I was going to places where there weren't rabbis, you know? And so I had to step up, you know, as a lay leader, just inside the military, because there were, you know, not just for myself, but for those that were around me. I mean, we had sailors, airmen, and marine that, you know, needed a place to go. And sometimes it was the lay leader on top of the naval officer hat that I wore that was able to bring a service to folks. So it didn't stop there, but, you know, I I believe having grown up reform, I I took a step up towards, you know, closer to conservative Judaism because I didn't have it as much in the military. And I I enjoyed lighting candles even if I was the only one around in the middle of, of the desert. So when I got out of the service, you know, it's not like you you take off one you take off the uniform and you stop. It's like I'm all in. I mean, there's you you give someone who is busy something to do because they can get it done. And I've always said yes. I've always stepped up, and it was both you know personally and professionally. I mean, I, I love serving on the Israeli Seal Foundation board. I sit on the uh, my Texas A&M Hillel board. I'm involved with the Navy SEAL Foundation still today as as an ambassador. Jewish war veterans, I I chair the Iraq and Afghanistan Committee. And and I'm not going to list them all, but, you know, they're they're all the important pillars of my life that I stay involved with. And whether it's, you know, I'm serving on a board or I'm working for an organization, if it's good enough to work at, it's good enough to serve on. If it's good enough to serve on the board, it's good enough to work at to me. So it's kind of a revolving door. 
And we mentioned, you know, this podcast is focused on cabinet. Um, and you are now a seventh year. You've served multiple leadership roles within cabinet. For someone who's listening who's uh, either new to cabinet or hasn't been a part of cabinet, can you share a little bit more about what cabinet is and some of uh, the, the program? Yeah, so it, it's it's a program that it has camaraderie all woven through it. So when you when you join cabinet, you're joining uh, a group and have that camaraderie and a camaraderie that lasts for life. So I can't underscore that. You're doing it with people from all over North America. I was so happy to be connected with people who were like me, maybe a little different. You know, maybe maybe some of us are very different, but we all are driven by some of the same things. And you get out what you what you put in. It truly is. And you know the the retreats, the the missions. Looking forward to going to the UAE and going to Israel. And you know I encourage as many people to to go on a mission as possible. But it's not just those two main events. Anytime you can get together with people from cabinet is a special thing. Even if it's just two people, we're all very much mobile. We we're bicoastal, many of us. And, you know, yes, we've been inside a lot and we're, 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 we've been social distancing, but a lot of us travel to places uh, for work or for vacation or even just intently to go see people on cabinet because of those, you know, those bonds that are forged, you know. And so I encourage, you know, anyone who's just picking up and going somewhere, make sure you let people know, right? You'd be surprised how people meet you in the middle on things like that. Can you share some of the either experiences uh, while either on a mission or a trip from cabinet or some of the people that you've met through cabinet that have inspired you? People that have inspired me. Well, I have to tell you, um, I spent a lot of time during COVID keeping my friend Kira Finkenberg, uh, who's on the West Coast in San Diego. And, you know, you couldn't have picked an, in, you know, an industry that got decimated the most. But, you know, we were on the phone daily, and it's just things that you just do f- for others, and, and we're dear friends. And so those, what happens within Cabinet transcends the reason that you join Cabinet. You know, being on a mission, I was in Morocco, and it was um, our first time in Rabat, which is the capital. And sitting across the table was, um, was Danielle Gross. And... Danielle and I just immediately connected and we hit it off and we talked for the entire lunch and we realized like she has twins and my nephew, I have twin nephews. And so you really get to know a lot about people and having just gone through a very, very difficult uh, time where my father had a emergency quadruple bypass and I've been in Texas since, and I'm hoping to go back to New York in a week. It's overwhelming what this cabinet community does for, for folks in good times and bad times. And I will just thank everybody at, while we're doing this for all the calls, all the texts, for all of the caring bridges, for the edible arrangements um, that were, were sent, uh, because it really makes a difference. And uh, I, I do remember one of my first years on cabinet where, you know, we were doing minions every single morning for a, for, um, a Hevra whose wife had gone through cancer. And so you really see the human side of, uh, of things, not just the organizational aspect of, of what we're doing. It's, it's very deep. 
Cabinet, for anyone who isn't aware, is, is a leadership development program for about uh, 300 people from North America, as you mentioned, uh, within the Jewish Federations of North America. Why is it, you mentioned a little bit about why you're passionate about giving to the Jewish community, you mentioned a little bit about service, we've discussed about cabinet, but why is it, you know, the Jewish federations that you've chosen to to get involved and, and some of the areas that you're involved with the federation? Right. So a lot of this predates my existence, my being on earth. You know, I can just share briefly that, you know, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for my paternal grandmother being rescued from the Holocaust from Nazi Germany by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And that was, you know, they were funded by Federation. So I, I appreciate that my great, my grandmother's father was resourceful to find highest to, to rescue her on a kindred transport that she didn't see her parents again until years later until she was married with my father and growing up in the 80s i saw what it was like for soviet jewry you know the whole soviet jewry movement when my parents in the beaumont texas jewish community helped resettle two refusenik families into our hometown i mean these they were they had two families their kids were a little bit younger i babysat them they're now they're all grown up they have college degrees they're they have kids and they're living an amazing life uh, as citizens in this country. And then fast forward, I mean, even after my time in the military, when I was working for, for UJA, I staffed a mission to Ethiopia. And I staffed it for a reason. You know, years before my parents had been to Israel on a young leadership trip, and they remembered going to the, the absorption centers in, in Israel to meet the, the Ethiopian Jews and see him going through the different, uh, you know, its skill sets and, and whatnot. And I found that going to Ethiopia to bring 80 Olim to Israel to make Aliyah, to kiss the tarmac, I mean, it is, it is things that we do as a federation touch so many lives. And, you know, this was one of those situations where I actually got to journey with them. And, you know, I'll say my Hebrew name is Moshe for Moses, which means to, to schlep out, to, to pull out, to draw out. And um, I spend a lot of my time right now just helping bring out uh, Afghan uh, allies and their families. And so it's just part of the DNA. But, I, but I, I would say that there's no other organization like a federation system. It's non-negotiable. It's not do this or, be, or, or this. This this you do, and then you do the other things, right? It doesn't even get a, there's no voting on it. It happens. It's permanent. And, but it takes all of us to keep it that way. You mentioned a little bit about your family's legacy. When, when you look forward, what do you hope your legacy should look like? Well, I, I really hope that one day I have kids. Let's start there. Um, but that they learn the, these values of of chesed and gemilut chafadim, these acts of loving kindness and tikkun olam, repairing the world and what it means to do pakuach nefesh, saving a life, and that service is the rent we pay to life to you know pay in life to live. Absolutely, I mean, it should just be something that they do, they enjoy doing, and they and they 
you know, can't get enough of it, right? Um, it, when you ask anybody to write down on a piece of paper who they serve, never will they put their name on that list. But, you know, when we think about Hillel's quote, if, if, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself and not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? We have to, we have to be there for ourselves. We have to prioritize ourselves as we are doing for others. It is important to do both because if we are not strong, we can't help anybody. So I encourage everybody as they're going through a cabinet and going through their, their philanthropic journey to remember Hillel's quote. I didn't understand it as much growing up until I did just recently, but it's absolutely how you play the long game, especially when you're doing all of those wonderful things that we do in philanthropy. As we gear up for Shabbat and the upcoming Jewish holidays, are there any specific rituals or uh, special observances that you're looking forward to? Well, I love Hanukkah. There's, make no mistake about it. It is it is one of my favorite holidays with, with family. And um, being that also there's Thanksgiving around the corner, I, you know, there's a lot to be thankful for this year. Um, but I think they're both very much celebratory. You know, we're rejoicing. You know, there's a miracles, <laughs> miracle of Hanukkah. There's a miracle that my dad is was is even alive today. The people around us, the things that we have to be thankful for, um, our freedom. You know, Hanukkah, religious freedom. You, you we're at a very dangerous cross section, you know, crossroad in our existence as a people, and we need to be out there and about. We need to have that voice. We cannot, we cannot be an unsilent minority. You know, we have to have place at the table and we need to, to know that it's going to affect our kids and our grandkids. And that's something at the same time that I'm optimistic about because I know that we can do this, but Hanukkah is a reminder about that. And, um, you know, it's been a number of years, a couple of years since we've even celebrated done the, the Celebrate Israel Parade up Fifth Avenue in New York City. And, you know, this year, uh, we will be there. We will be proud to be Jews, proud to, to be um, a people, proud of Israel. And I think that if we're not there and we're absent, it just allows all of the other negative energy uh, to come through. So we, we need to be there for, for each other. We certainly don't need to be, be against each other, but we need to uh, to remember that um, you know we persevered for millennium, and uh, we're still doing it today. But we're strong when we do it together. For anyone who's considering joining cabinet, or for anyone who has recently joined cabinet, do you have any pieces of advice or wisdom to share with those members? Get to know as many people as possible. Even I know there's a lot of people out there, and you can forget somebody's name practice doing something to remember somebody's name, but just get to know them, get to know their families. Um, if somebody invites you to a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, go. Be very open-minded. You know, you're going to grow a lot, a lot. And you might not see that it's, you know, five years is going to go by too quickly, but believe me, it does. Encourage others. Be proud to talk about what you know, cabinet in your hometown communities. I mean, there's a, it is one of the best kept secrets. In a lot of ways, it needs a coming out party every single year as we go through recruitment. But uh, learn from those that have come before. 
get to know them, especially since their time is, is more limited. And then do it, you know, and return it, pay it forward by getting to know those that come after you. Make them feel at home. Make it a, a, an inclusive environment for everybody. There's no reason a cabinet should ever be, um, you know, anything but an open tent, you know, and that there's not a seat at the table for even our own chevra. Uh, and it's just a powerful thing. You know, when you meet somebody you had nothing in common with except for the fact that you were chevra, they might end up being one of your best friends. As we wrap up the interview, you know, thinking about this interview, we, we focused on service, on your service. Are there any final comments or things you want to leave with the people that are listening? I appreciate that this is the last question. You know, we all serve in different ways back home, in the community, across the country, and, and, and globally. You know, service is something that's done agnostic to many, many things. Uh, agnostic to politics, agnostic to um, whether uh, somebody, you know, supported this football team or that football team, agnostic to where they live or their socioeconomic status, ego-free, and it's not about you. Service is about, as it relates, is selfless. You can be selfish for yourself so that you can do the things that you need to do Again, to be a selfless, do selfless service and be a servant leader. But, you know, when it, when you see that your service makes an impact, you smile inside in your heart. That's the reward. You do it, you do it quietly. Sometimes you have to be a little bit more public about it if it inspires. But it is, um, it is something that we all do. We do it in our own way, but we do it respectfully. And I hope that, um, you know, for those that have kids or are able to transfer some of those values to, to their kids and, and, and so forth. But um, it's a special thing. There's a reason why I've said this now for the third time, that service is the rent we pay in life to live. Well, Mark, we are so appreciative of the service that you've given to this country, to our community and to cabinet. And we're also so grateful that your father is doing better. I know we've spoken about that a couple times. And so I'm, you know, have been thinking about him and I know many people in cabinet and otherwise friends, family, relatives of yours are as well. Um, and I hope for everyone who's listening that you were inspired by this episode to give, to think about the service that you've done in your life and that you hope to still accomplish and inspire in others. So thank you for your time. And Mark, thank you again for being with us. Thank you for having me. Shalom. It's Lindsay Glantz. And Aaron Carabell. And we are the 2021-2022 co-chairs of National Young Leadership Cabinet. We hope you enjoyed getting to know our Evra. Stay tuned for our next installment of Clever Connect. Through the zooms and the Step up.